This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, uh, continuing our series on Matthew and the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And what you'll notice is uh, that graphic that we have to represent this series has a cross in it. If you think about what kind of a kingdom is represented by a cross, uh, you know, for us in 2021, the cross has become this picture of uh, something amazing and beautiful, something we look to as uh, for inspiration, for a reminder of what Jesus did. But in the time of Jesus, the thought of a king coming to die on a cross would have been complete scandal. It's the instrument of ex- execution. And so this morning, as we look at what Jesus does in his baptism, I think we're going to see how already early in his ministry, he is moving towards that thing for which he came, and that is to love us. Total dedication to the task that God gave him. So we're going to be looking this morning at the baptism of Jesus. Uh, last week, we looked at John the Baptist in the first part of chapter 3, and John the Baptist was baptizing all these people. Well, today, Jesus actually comes to him for baptism, and we're going to see uh, what happens with all that. And so uh, as John's message was kind of to announce that Jesus was coming, to announce that, hey, you all better get ready for this king um, now today, this baptism of Jesus is the official announcement that he is here, he has come, and he is beginning his work. And so we want to look at that and see how God wants to speak to us through his word today. So Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. If you got it in your Bible, you can read in your Bible or you can follow along on the screens as well. So Matthew three thirteen through 17 says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is God's word. So this morning, I want us to look at a couple things. And first of all, when we think about the baptism of Jesus, we might be thinking about this and saying, okay, is this the same as what John was doing for everybody? I want to spend just a second talking about this baptism. In fact, if you look in your bulletin, we're going to talk about what the baptism of Jesus is and what it is not. Uh, That's kind of how we're going to approach this text today, because it is a very significant event in the life of Jesus. This is one of those events that is included in all four Gospels. And and if you're a student of Scripture, you'll know anytime something shows up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that means it's something that all four authors decided, or under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decided that they would emphasize. That means it's very important for us to look at it, to dig into it, and see what's going on here. Uh, And so when we think about the baptism of John the Baptist, which is what we talked about last week, John came out in the wilderness. He said, come out here, get your hearts ready for the king who's coming. So it was a baptism of repentance. He said, turn away from the things that would keep you from that king, from having a relationship with that king. Repent, turn away and turn towards God so you'll be ready for the king when he comes. Well, the second baptism that we have is this baptism of Jesus, which is different as we're going to see today. This is not a baptism of repentance. This is a baptism of commitment. And you'll see what that means in just a minute. But then we also have what we practice here at Trinity Church, that third kind of baptism, which is baptism of believers, believers baptism. And so how does Jesus's baptism fit in that? Is it more like John's baptism? Is it more like believers baptism? And the reality is 
It's a thing kind of all by itself. As we're going to see this morning, Jesus gets baptized for reasons completely different than what John's disciples got baptized for. And then for reasons that we get baptized for. There's definitely some similarities, uh, but it's a completely different thing in and of itself. None of these, I want to point out though, first of all, is that none of these types of baptism are actually cleansing. As in, uh, when John baptized people, he didn't say, okay, come down in the water. And when you get out of the water, you're going to be forgiven for your sins. No, uh, it's not that way for us as believers either. When we come to be baptized, that water doesn't wash away our sins. It's a picture of what God has done on the inside to us. And actually, uh, when we look at Jesus' baptism today as well, that water is a picture of what he's experiencing as our Savior as well. And so water is this physical outward reminder of an inward reality. And so that's important to remember about all of these types of baptism. Uh, let's see if I can go back here a little bit. Okay, so what did I, what, the first question is this, what baptism is not, and, and the word is cleansing. Baptism is not cleansing. I just mentioned that. Uh, it's not that uh, Jesus came here in John 3 and said, okay, I'm about to start my ministry. I need to get myself washed all clean uh, physically and get all the sin out of my life so now I can go on and do God's will. It is not that, okay? In fact, when we look at this passage, these five verses, verses 13 through 17, we actually have three people who speak. Did you all notice that? Three people who speak. First of all, you have John the Baptist who makes a statement. Second, you have Jesus who makes a statement. And then third, you have God the Father making a statement. And so we want to look at actually each of those three statements because each of those three statements speaks to us today. And, and in fact, John's statement in, verses thir- in verse 14 uh, is, is that, basically. What John's point is is that this is not a baptism of cleansing. What does he say to Jesus? Verse 14, it says, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In other words, what John the Baptist is saying to Jesus is, you don't need this. Everyone who's coming to get baptized by me in the Jordan River is full of sin. Uh, they're coming and I'm telling them, repent, turn away from that sin and turn to God. But you don't need that. You are the king. You're the promised Messiah. You don't have any sin. It is not necessary for you to be baptized in the same way as everyone else. And so that's the big point John the Baptist is making, is that this is not cleansing. Jesus' baptism, he didn't come down to the water so that he could be cleansed from his sin or to even have a picture of being cleansed from his sin because Jesus was already pure. How do we know this? A couple other places in Scripture that mention this, uh, but uh, Hebrews 4.15 says a little later in the New Testament, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet he is without sin. All right, so the New Testament makes this point that Jesus lived a perfect life, unlike any other human that lived before him. He lived a perfect life, never sinned, even though he has been tempted in every way as we are. Isn't that interesting to think about? Jesus came along, faced every temptation we did. In fact, that's our topic for next week in Matthew 4, is the temptation of Jesus Christ. Um... He faced those temptations, and yet he said no to them and lived a perfect life so that he could offer himself as a perfect sacrifice. He is the only one who could save us because of what he did. So this is not a baptism of cleansing. This actually reminds me of uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake... 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, God took this perfectly sinless person named Jesus, and he put our sin on him. We're going to see that a little bit later in Isaiah 53, how he bore our sins. And so he put our sins on him, even though he was perfect, so that we could be free. And this baptism already begins to show some of what God's plan was for that. And so what we see again, the baptism of Jesus, it's very clear that it was not for Jesus' cleansing. Scripture tells us that Jesus was flawless, sinless. He had no need to repent. He had no need to be cleansed. So that's not what this baptism was for. John the Baptist makes that clear with that statement he makes. And if you read the other Gospels, the same thing. You know, uh, one of the things in the last, what, eight, nine months, we've all learned how to wash our hands appropriately, right? You've got this proper method of you're supposed to sing happy birthday twice and scrub with soap twice. I, I don't even know. Uh, but, you know, I, I think there's probably a point where some of us are about to rub the skin off of our hands, aren't we? Because <laughs> we're just washing them over and over again, using hand sanitizer. Well, this is this is important for us to realize what happens here with Jesus. Just remember this. It's not like that, like where we have to keep cleansing our hands and washing them, make sure we don't have COVID or other germs. Jesus didn't need any of that kind of cleansing in his person. He had no flaws, no sin. He had no need to be washed or cleaned. So what we want to look at this is um, there's something different going on here. If, if our baptism is a picture of the repentance and the forgiveness that Jesus gives us, that's what believer's baptism is. We go down in the water and, it, and it's a picture of God washing away our sins. John the Baptist's baptism was a picture of people repenting and being cleansed of sin. But Jesus' baptism is something completely different. It has nothing to do with the cleansing. It's something different. So let's talk about what the baptism of Jesus is. What is it that he came to do? Why is this such an important event? And the first thing is this. The first thing it is is this, and you'll see this in your bulletin. It is a personal commitment to do God's will. This is this event, Jesus being willing to be baptized, is his own personal commitment to do the will of God. He says, I am committed to doing God's will. How do we know that? Uh, look at uh, verse 15. Jesus answered John. So again, this is our second statement here in the passage. Uh, this is the second person who speaks, and it's Jesus. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so then John consented and baptized him. So what is Jesus, how do we know he's making a commitment to do God's will? Well, he says it's necessary, this must happen, so we can fulfill all righteousness. So here's the thing, when you come to certain words in Scripture, it's important to stop and say, okay, I've heard that one a lot. <laughs> righteousness comes up a lot in Scripture. So let's pause and let's talk about what is righteousness uh, and, and how does Jesus fulfill it? Why is that Jesus' reason for here's why I need to be baptized? Because it's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. So when you think about righteousness, what comes to your head, I wonder? Probably this idea of, of doing good things, right? A righteous person is somebody who does good things or does the right thing. Um, and that's all a part of righteousness. That's, that's doing righteousness, if you will. But righteousness itself is something a little more specific. It's actually this, uh, what I would say is, is the standard, a standard. So here's a picture of a tape measure. If you're a builder and you say, I'm going to build a house and it's going to be 23 feet 
four and a half inches long, how do you know how long that's going to be? Well, you use a tape measure. And guess what? Everybody uses the same measurements. Uh, you have to use this standard so that if one guy on the job cuts a board that's 23 feet or 23 inches long, uh, then another person doesn't cut one through the same length and it ends up being something different. Everyone has to follow that same standard for it all to fit together. And so that's what righteousness is. Righteousness is this idea of conforming to the standard of what is right, to God's standard. Uh, in other words, what is right, doing what is intrinsically right, must line up with the will of God. Because God's will is always right, isn't it? And so when it says, when Jesus says, I'm here to fulfill all righteousness, he says, I am 100% committed to do what is in God's will. To act only righteously. So his actions will show righteousness. His actions will actually bring righteousness to sinful people. Remember, we are flawed humans. And God says, I want to make you righteous and clean so you can have a relationship with me. So Jesus will fulfill righteousness in that way by bringing it, making it available to us. Righteousness means conforming to the standard. And so Jesus says, I have come so that I can offer complete obedience to God. Flawless, sinless obedience. I alone will measure up to the standard. Because if you read the rest of Scripture, over and over and over again, you find no human being can measure up to the standard. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All these verses over and over again throughout Scripture tell us we can't measure up. And Jesus says, here I am. I'm committing myself to measure up because he can. He's God. And so he says it's a personal. And so we can see this, I believe, it's a personal commitment from Jesus to, to do God's will. So what is righteousness? It's, it's doing God's will. It's conforming to the standard of God's will. And how does Jesus fulfill it? He fulfills it by committing to do God's will and then doing God's will. And make no mistake, Jesus knew exactly what it was going to cost him when he committed to do God's will. He knew what it would cost. Um, in fact, you, you see the beginnings of this in the baptism. The baptism is a little picture of this. And so when we think about uh, him making this commitment at his baptism, what actually happens? He actually goes down into the Jordan River, it says, down into that dirty water. And here's something interesting to think about. Who else was coming for baptism, does it say earlier in the chapter? Chapter 3, uh, I believe it's verse 5 and 6. Then all Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I think some of the other Gospels talk about how publicans and sinners, how tax collectors and sinners were coming for baptism. So these are some of the most sinful people you could imagine at the time. And they're the ones going down into that water, that dirty Jordan River, and repenting and then coming out cleansed. And Jesus goes down into that water, identifying himself with all those sinners, even though he's clean. He goes down into that dirty water and identifies himself with all those for whom he came to save. Because, as we know, he came as a human. He is one of us. It cost him 
his position of power and authority in heaven when he chose to become a human, uh, taking on the very nature of a servant and being obedient to death on a cross. So he identifies with sinners. You see that just by his going down into the water, sharing the baptismal waters with all those impure people. So he's making a commitment to identify with the sinners because we know he is willing to save sinners. Later in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 20, verse 22, uh, some of his disciples say, hey, Lord, we want to we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand. And he says to them, are you able to drink the cup? That I drink. Uh, in other words, are you able to take the suffering that I'm going to take? In Mark 10:28, he actually says, "Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with?" In other words, he knows that when he goes down into that dirty water and identifies himself with the sinners, he knows what it's going to cost to save him, and it's a painful baptism. He'll be baptized into suffering. He teaches a lot about that later in Matthew. He is willing to save sinners. Uh, Flipping your Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. So this is interesting. We're going to see this in just a minute, uh, a little bit later. But Isaiah 42 through 53, Isaiah 42 through 53 uh, contain four songs that we call the servant songs. There's this person in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote this book 600 years before Jesus was born. And he says, there's someone who's coming. We're going to call him the servant. And nowadays we call him the suffering servant because this servant that's described in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 53 suffers a lot, suffers a lot. And for what purpose? To save his people from their sins. So look with me, Isaiah 53. We're going to see that that uh, a little bit later in our passage today, it clearly identifies Jesus as the servant. But what does the servant have to go through? What is he committing to do by committing to do God's will? It says this, Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. There's three or four things in that verse that I hope to never experience. Right? Wounded, crushed, chastised, stripes being beaten. Those are the things that we don't have to experience because Jesus already has. And when he committed to do God's will to fulfill all righteousness, he knew he was committing to be this servant. Verse 6 of Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God has placed our sins on him says, all we like sheep have gone astray. You know, it's interesting to see Jesus here in Matthew 3 doing the opposite of that, right? He is walking straight into the baptismal water. He knows exactly what God has called him to do. And he says, I am committed to do what God wants me to do. Opposite us, right? We're like these sheep that wander away. Um, We have one sheep at our house right now and three goats. And these three little goats, they're not sheep, but kind of the same thing, okay? And Every little hole in the fence, they find. I don't know how, it's like they have radar for holes in the fence. And they get out and run away. Even though all their feed is in the pen, all their water is there, they want to escape and run somewhere else. That's what we do. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
we have turned away from God to do our own thing. But as we see here with Jesus, when he comes, his baptism is a picture of him committing to say, I'm not going to turn aside to do my own thing. I'm going to do the will of the Father so that I can save anyone who trusts in me. So Jesus' personal commitment to do God's will identifies him with sinners. He says he's willing to save sinners. Look a little further down in in Isaiah 53, just a couple more verses. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Go down a little further to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. When he has put him to grief, when his soul makes an offering for sin, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You catch that? It says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus would have known Isaiah 53. And he would have known when he says, I'm committing to fulfill all righteousness. I'm committing to fulfill all the things that God wants me to do as this servant. He knows that the will of God is going to be to crush him. And he willingly says, I'm going to do that. His baptism shows us his willingness. Another thing we see here in this baptism as he's making this commitment to God and to us is that it fulfills God's plan, right? When he actually uses that word, this fulfills all righteousness. This has always been a part of God's plan. Flipping your Bibles to uh, Psalm chapter 40. Psalm chapter 40. Psalm 40 is actually a psalm that was frequently used as a dedication psalm. So if somebody, uh, let's say a, a new king was being dedicated or uh, just different situations in Israel's history, they would have used this psalm. And so again, Jesus, being who he was, would certainly have had this going through his head. I think it's so powerful. Psalm chapter 40, verse 6, as he's going down into the baptismal waters, think about this going around in Jesus's head. It says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Or some translations say, a body you have prepared for me. Think about it. Jesus became a human with a body that could be baptized. And then reading on, uh, it says, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. And then verse 9, it says, I have told of the glad news of deliverance in a great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. So Jesus came to do all those things. God prepared a body for him so that he could suffer and die in our place and so that he could proclaim this message of salvation. He was dedicating himself here. He was committing himself here in uh, Matthew chapter 3. To fulfill God's plan. And then the last thing I want us to see about this commitment that he made. Uh, is if you look again back in chapter 3 of Matthew. Look at verse 11. This is John the Baptist talking. We looked at this last week. John the Baptist says. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And with fire. So what we see here with Jesus coming, getting baptized, submitting himself to God's will, committing to do God's will, publicly committing in front of all Israel, in front of all the people, we see him making it possible for us to receive that baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
You see, because Jesus died for us, because He forgave our sins, if we trust Him and receive that forgiveness, receive the eternal life that we have through His resurrection, God gives us the Holy Spirit. God comes to live inside us forever through His Holy Spirit. And that is made possible because of the commitment and the obedience of Jesus Christ that we see symbolized right here in His baptism. So His baptism makes possible the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So when we think about this personal commitment that Jesus made to accomplish God's will, here's my question. I think we have to bring it down to a personal level. Now, Jesus had a very specific task that God asked him to do. He knew that he was called to be the suffering servant to die for the sins of the whole world. We don't have that same task. But I think we can ask ourselves the same question that Jesus had to ask himself. And I'm sure it was crossing his mind during this baptism. What will it cost you to commit to do God's will? What are you willing to sacrifice in order to do God's will? Jesus says to his followers, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself daily, take up his cross and follow me. If you want to commit to do God's will, like Jesus did, to follow him in that, you know it's going to cost you something. So I think it's important for us to think about that. What will it cost me? It might cost you resources. It could cost you friends. It will cost you your time. But to follow Christ and to accomplish God's will that he has for your life, to know him and to make him known, it's going to cost you something going to cost you something so what will it cost you that's the first thing that the baptism of jesus is is the personal commitment to do god's will but the second thing that i want us to see and this is important is that it is divine empowerment to do god's will in other words it's not enough uh, for just a human being to come along and say i'm going to do god's will in fact even in the case of jesus if he had come and said i'm going to do god's will and for some strange way God wasn't on board with that, it wouldn't have happened. It's not possible because Jesus was God. But it's a picture of what's necessary for us as well. And so Jesus' baptism, in this event, we see God giving his divine empowerment so that Jesus can actually go out and accomplish that will. How do we see that? Look at verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So what do we see going on here? This divine empowerment. God's given him the divine ability. First of all, what we have to see is that God is basically anointing him in this event. When he comes up out of the water, God comes down and anoints him. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of stories of this king gets anointed with oil or this priest gets anointed with something to do God's work. And, uh, and basically it's a picture. Every time somebody gets anointed with oil, it was basically God saying, here's the person I've chosen for king. I approve of this person as the new king. King David did that. Actually, King Saul, multiple different kings in the Old Testament. So God was anointing them, empowering them, saying, I've chosen this person to do this job. And so when God anoints Jesus with this visible representation of the Holy Spirit, it's him saying, I'm empowering him, I'm anointing him, I'm giving my approval. You know, it's interesting, this anointing happens, it says uh, the Spirit comes down like a dove. 
wasn't actually a dove. It just says it looked like a dove. And so what does this mean? Why would the dove or something like that be used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit? There's a lot of stuff you can read about this, but it's really interesting that God chose the form of a dove to represent the Spirit. You think about a dove. It's a very small, very gentle, very timid type of animal. Uh, Gentle and harmless, peaceful. In fact, doves today are used as a symbol of peace. But I think it's more than that. Because something about the dove coming from the Old Testament shows us that, that Jesus is again making himself accessible to every single person on the planet. Anyone who will come to him can receive him. And what do I mean by that? If you look at the sacrifices in the Old Testament... God laid out this whole plan in Leviticus and in Numbers and Exodus that you could either bring a bull or a goat as a sin offering. Or if you couldn't afford that, you could bring a sheep. If you couldn't afford that, you could actually bring a dove, which anybody could afford. Or hypothetically, you could actually go out and catch your own dove, a wild dove, and bring it as a sacrifice. God made it possible even for the poor to come with him, come to him with a sacrifice for sin. And a dove was a picture of that, that even poor people can come to God. And Jesus receiving the Spirit represents that fact that he is a sacrifice, not just for the rich and the powerful, for those who can afford bulls and goats. He is a sacrifice that's effective for anyone who comes to him, rich or poor, man or woman, black or white. It doesn't matter. He is available for anyone who will trust him. He brings God's power in gentleness. So that's the first thing is God anoints him in this. And then uh, God also identifies him. He says, this is my son. This is my son. Uh, this goes back to Psalm chapter two, verse seven. The verse is on the screen. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, Psalm two is a psalm that was used over and over again. Every time a new king got experienced their coronation, it would have been used every time a new king uh, was installed as king. So in one respect, when uh, somebody's called the son of God, actually that was kind of a term that they would actually use for kings. But it's so much more than that here. It's significant that God is saying, you are the next king. But he's also saying, you are my son. You are fully God. You have the same essence that I do. Jesus, Jesus wasn't just half God and half man. He was fully God and fully man. No one else like him has ever lived or will ever live. You know, the the name of this church is Trinity Church. Trinity is something we see in Scripture. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And this passage right here is one of those rare places in Scripture where you see clearly all three persons of the Trinity. You hear God the Father's voice. You heard God the Son's voice and saw his uh, baptism. And you see the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove. All three are there. And there's much about the Trinity that's a mystery. But what I think this shows us, and it actually, it had to have been incredibly confidence giving to Jesus to look back on this event and to know that anytime anything happens as a result of God's plan, any work of God from creation to redemption, we usually can say this, the Father decrees it, the Son does it, and the Spirit empowers it. In fact, you could say anytime God is working, All three persons of the Trinity are working together. One doesn't go off by himself. The Spirit doesn't go off and do something because he feels like it, and the Son doesn't know about it, or vice versa. 
All three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, work together for every act of God in history. And we see that happening here, that as Jesus is commissioned, as he is being empowered to go out and do this work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together and receiving that power from God. One more text from the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, verses 1 and 4. So this is the first of those servant songs that I mentioned. We already looked at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 42 is the first one where it introduces the servant. And it says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. You know, a couple of things in there. It says, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Did you catch the echo of that in Matthew 3? This is my son whom I love, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And then the spirit comes down in the baptism, just like God said it would in Isaiah 42. One thing you can clearly see is that Jesus here in his baptism is being identified as the servant who has come to save us. And that's an incredible thing. That verse 4, it says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. In other words, God is empowering him to do what he needs to do. God is giving him everything he needs to do. So what is the baptism of Jesus? It's the divine empowerment. You know, first of all, we see that God anoints him. God identifies him. And then the third thing we see, of course, is that God is really approving of him and saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And if you think about that, events like baptism, even for Jesus, would be an event he could look back on for the rest of his life and remember when he heard that voice from heaven, the voice of his heavenly father saying, you are my son who I love. With you, I am well pleased. God approved of Jesus and the work he was going to do, which made it possible for God to approve of us and the forgiveness that we receive through Jesus Christ. So we see that the baptism of Jesus is is his personal commitment. We see it's the divine empowerment. And I think then we have to talk about this. Again, we have a different task than Jesus did. Jesus came to save the world. You can't save the world. I can't save the world. (laughs) He's given us a different task. And yet, he calls us to be dependent on him through his divine empowerment the same way. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do a lot of things. It's not what it says, is it? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Actually, you can do a lot of things, but I think what's what he's saying here is you can do nothing of lasting value if God's not involved in it. So that leads us, I think, to two questions I would just ask, two takeaway questions that we need to ask ourselves about this point. Number one is how do you depend on God? How do you depend on him for divine empowerment? Um, I think one of the greatest ways we can do this is through prayer. Through prayer. Howard Hendricks once said, if you can do what you're doing without praying about it, then it's probably not worth doing. So that's one of the reasons we are encouraging you all to use that prayer handbook. Make prayer a part of the fabric of your life because that's your way of depending on God daily, asking him to help you and working with him. And that second question goes along with that. Is there anything in your life that can only be explained by the power of God working in you? 
When you think about God empowering you to do his work, is there anything you can think of that can only be explained by God working through you? It might be something in your past, maybe the way God saved you or healed you. It might be something in the present right now that you see God doing. And the only way you can explain the fact that you're still uh, with your husband or with your wife or the only way you can explain that you're still alive is because Jesus is working in your life through the Holy Spirit. Or it might be something in the future. God is wanting to do something through you that can only be explained by the fact that he has empowered you to do it. He says, I want you to go and make disciples. You can't do that without my power. And if even Jesus depended on the power of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment of God to do his will, I think it means that we also need to seek that out and trust him and realize that we can do nothing apart from him. And that's our message for today from the baptism of Jesus. I think it's a great picture of the amazing person who came to save us, the commitment he made to do it, and the way that God says, I'm going to make it possible for him to do it supernaturally, just like he wants to do in your life and in my life, supernatural things to rescue people forever. Will you stand with me and we'll close with a word of prayer? These are the words from Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 20 and 21 says this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed. Go and make disciples.